Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. You believe that America is the land of opportunity? Yeah. Apollo Creed does. And he's going to prove it to the whole world by giving an unknown a shot at the title. And that unknown is you. He picked you, Rocky. 45 years ago, Rocky and its star, Sylvester Stallone, were just that, unknowns. And then just a few short months after its December 1976 release, Rocky was a Best Picture winner and Stallone was a star. Stallone and Rocky would then go on to single-handedly end the Cold War with Rocky IV. You remember that, Josh? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's how I was taught it in school, actually. (laughs) This week, we take another look at Rocky, part of our 7 from 76 series, and we continue our 40s film noir marathon with the truly odd Detour from 1945. That and more. If you shut up and don't give me any arguments, you'll have nothing to worry about. (laughs) Savage, Josh. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. I am a little worn out this week, Josh. I think I'm going to need a lot more of that Anne Savage and Detour energy from you this week. Can you do that? I don't know. That might be all I had. I mean, she keeps it up the whole movie, but um, I don't think I can be that domineering, Adam. It's just not in me. If you had a Spinal Tap amp, but four noir movies, Detour might be noir turned all the way up to 11. I, I like that. I think that's about right. Yeah. It is next up in our 40s noir marathon. We'll talk detour later in the show. Also later in the show, we'll announce the winner of Film Spotting Madness. Best of the 80s, sadly, Spinal Tap did go out, though had a pretty good run, was the Cinderella for a while. That's our 64-film bracket-style tournament that came down to Do the Right Thing versus The Shining. Nobody knows yet, Josh, but us who took the prize. Podcast listeners will hear how all of that went down. Radio listeners, you can always get the full show over at filmspotting.net or wherever you get your podcasts. But first, the film that beat Taxi Driver, All the President's Men, and Network for the 1977 Best Picture Oscar. Must be good. Rocky. Mr. Balboa. Call me Rocky. It's Rocky. Tell me, Rocky, you've got any representation? You have a manager? Uh, No, just me. Rocky, I've got a proposition I'd like to make to you. A uh, sparring? Beg your pardon? Well, I just said I know you're looking for sparring partners, and I just want to say I'm very available, you know. I'm sure you are. Absolutely. Uh, sparring with the chairman would be an honor, and you know what, Mr. Jerkins? What? I wouldn't take no cheap shots either. I'd really be a good sparring partner, you know. You don't understand me, Rocky. My proposition's this. Would you be interested in fighting Apollo Creed for the World Heavyweight Championship? No. Listen, Rocky. Apollo's seen you fight. He likes you. 
He wants to fight you. Well, it's just that you see, uh, I fight in clubs, you know, and I'm really a ham and egg. This guy, he's the best, and uh, it wouldn't be such a good fight. But th thank you very much, you know. I appreciate it. You know. Rocky was among the last of the 1977 Best Picture nominees to make it to theaters. Taxi Driver came out in February 76, All the President's Men in April, Network then in November. Rocky opened wide in early December, about the same time as the fifth nominee, Hal Ashby's Woody Guthrie biopic, Bound for Glory. Rocky was also by far the most successful. It was the highest grossing film released in 1976. And how about this? The second highest grossing film of 1977 behind only a plucky little underdog named Star Wars. It went on to be nominated for 10 Oscars. Rocky won three for editing, for directing John G. Avildsen, and yes, for best picture. Stallone, nominated for Best Actor and for his screenplay. Talia Shire, who plays Adrian, was nominated for Best Actress, and both Burgess Meredith as Rocky's crusty trainer, Mickey. That's that's a crusty voice we hear there from <laughs> Meredith, for sure. Women weaken legs. The crustiest. And Burt Young as Rocky's buddy, Paulie, were nominated for Supporting Actor. But Rocky, like the title character, was an unlikely champ. Star Sylvester Stallone was not a star in 76, he was, like Rocky Balboa, a working stiff, still working regular jobs between acting gigs. His screenplay was greenlit with a paltry $1 million budget. And the movie, if you haven't seen it for a while or haven't seen it at all, has none of the eye of the tiger glam that we associate with the 80s sequels. The mid-70s Philadelphia we see on screen is dirty, grimy, and sad. Stallone's Balboa makes ends meet playing the muscle for a loan shark, and his first bout in a rundown and sparsely attended boxing club, a scene I'd forgotten completely, Josh, is a pretty ugly affair straight out of Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler. Yes. His boxing career is at a dead end when Carl Weathers' Apollo Creed, desperate to find a fill-in opponent for his heavily promoted 4th of July fight, picks Rocky's Italian stallion for no better reason than his name. Now, Josh, unlike the fight with Creed, Rocky should come into this main event, and I'm referring to the double bill of Rocky versus the other Best Picture nominees we've discussed and Rocky versus Larson as the favorite. It did win Best Picture after all, but of course it's the underdog, because I know there's almost no chance you think it's better than All the President's Men or Network or Taxi Driver. There's only a slightly greater chance that you liked it at all on this revisit as you've only fired hater jabs at it any time it's been mentioned on the show in the past. Finally, I get to hear, what is it about Rocky that bothers you so, and did any aspect of it win you over this time? Yeah, that, that's a high bar to ask it to be better than those films right. in my revisit. But you'll have to trust me, Adam. You'll have to believe me that I did go into it at least hoping it would leap the bar of, of winning me over. Um, and... To set the record straight, I've liked to joke about it. This is one of those where I'm I'm mixed to negative on, just have never had the affection that most of the world seems to have for it for particular reasons we'll get into. Um, but this isn't like I'm trashing Rocky as a terrible film. Did I find it this time to be a good film, a film that, um, you know, through more mature eyes or older eyes, uh, I, I see things that I missed before. And I'm, I will agree with you. I'll say at the start, I agree with you first that I forgot that opening scene, the mm -hmm. opening boxing match, and that it does capture the grimy realism 
of this movie that Avildsen, I think, stresses particularly. Mm -hmm. I think the cinematography um, really emphasizes it with a lot of these dark alleys and uh, just the streets themselves, the the crowded rooms even, you know, the cinematographer here, James Crabb. So I think I came to appreciate some of the filmmaking elements we'll probably get to uh, a little bit more um, than I did the first time. But for me, What's most helpful for me, illuminating for me as I watched it again, it kind of clarified my resistance to it. And it comes from an Apollo Creed speech. And this is when they're discussing the idea of bringing Rocky in as the challenger, this unknown underdog. And Creed has a great speech. I really also loved Carl Weathers in this film. I've I've got to say, Um, maybe hopefully Sam can use some of the speech itself because I can't do it justice like Weathers does. But it's basically when the cocky, crafty Creed is um, explaining to his manager and others what he's after here. He says, I'm going to put his face on this poster with me and I'll tell you why. Because I'm sentimental. And a lot of other people in this country are just as sentimental and there's nothing they'd like better than to see Apollo Creed give a local Philadelphia boy a shot at the greatest title in the world on this country's biggest birthday. Now that's the way I see it. And that's the way it's going to be. So Creed speech is the movie's ethos. It's its creed. It's literally its creed. And I just realized I am not that sentimental. I'm not sentimental in that way. And just as how... Creed is kind of manipulating things behind the scenes. I feel those manipulations in Rocky, in the screenplay. And that's part of my hesitancy. That's a personal problem. You know, I, you should not be angry with me, Adam. You should feel bad for me that I can't give myself over to the rousing sentimentality of Rocky. Hmm. Um, so that is kind of like the starting point for me. Um, but the other thing which we'll get to and spend more time on in detail, uh, I think, is Stallone's performance. I just can't access it. I, I cannot um, find a way into this character. And if, and if you can't access Rocky, you're not going to be able to, mm-hmm. to go for this movie. That, that is it. I mean, this is a tour de force from Stallone. We've already mentioned all the ways he was involved. He's in almost every scene. He gives it all he's got. Um, I'm going to leave that there for now and <laughs> maybe hear why Stallone works for you. And I can get yeah. into a little bit more why he doesn't for me, but it, it is something that I was hoping I would be one over this time, a little bit more on Stallone to just take him on his face as this new talent, put aside all the other Stallone pictures I had seen, um, and, and try to experience what people did experience in 76. And I couldn't get there. Hmm. Yeah. I hear what you're saying, but you're completely wrong about everything so far. And in fairness, of course, I do agree and understand that if you can't access Stallone's performance, if it doesn't work for you, then this movie isn't going to work for you. But I love that speech, and I don't think the key part is the sentimentality line. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But for all of that sentimentality that we associate with this movie. And we think about the triumphant Bill Conti piece, Gonna Fly Now, and that inspiring story, him running up the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which are now basically just called the Rocky Steps because you've got the statue there, his arms raised in glory. 
I really found this time, and Josh, I haven't seen this movie since I was a kid. I don't remember even watching it really in one sitting. It probably happened, but Rocky was just a movie that was on a lot in the 80s, along with the sequels. And I'm sure I saw it on HBO again and again. So this is a movie I felt like I knew really well, and yet there was a lot that definitely felt like I was seeing it for the first time. And I was struck by and surprised by how unrousing and melancholy the movie really is. It's not going to fly now. It's actually that really plaintive piano theme that we hear multiple times that I think most connects to the material and that I most connected with. And I think that is also tied to Stallone's melancholy performance. But before we talk about that, I'll just say there's a modesty to this movie that the sequels maybe don't have that makes it so enjoyable for me. There's a modesty to Rocky's aspirations. This truly should have been a one-off. And I don't just mean that in a snarky way, like, well, maybe the sequels weren't very good. I mean, I'm one of those people who does pretend Rocky V never happened, but I can praise Rocky II, three, and even four. Certainly, you know, nine or 10-year-old me thought Rocky IV was maybe the greatest film ever made. But watching Rocky 76, he's 30. His body is already breaking down. It's clear that he's not a gifted fighter. Maybe at one time he was or he had some potential, but there's no expectation that the fighter we see at the end of this movie should go on to become the heavyweight champion of the world. Sure. Because he's not equipped for it, but also because the Rocky we see in this movie isn't even chasing that. That that wasn't the goal. And I think Stallone is very effective in one scene in particular when he tells Adrian what's really on his mind, what his real objective is for this fight, when he realizes that he can step into the ring. It's not that he's going to win. There's really no chance of that. He says, all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go the distance and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. That's it. That's the aspirations of this movie, the aspirations of its hero. And can I can I jump in and just say I really like that scene. And here's yeah. one thing I like about it. I think it's one of Talia Shire's best moments because of how she reacts. I think he begins it by saying something like, I can't win this fight. Right. Along those lines. a great line. Her response is so great. What are we going to do? What are do? we going to do? It, it's not like, this is where it doesn't go sentimental. Like, yeah. yes, you can. Look how far you've come. Right. Or I believe in you. She, she's just like, all she offers is I'm here for you. That's it. And I and think that's a really nice moment. Now, I, I will also say it gives the movie an out because we're jumping all the way to the end here. But I did remember and know that one of the things of the Rocky legend is that it doesn't end in victory, right? It's this split decision that the judges do give to Creed, but th that's a very nice scene that also allows the movie to have it sort of like revert against the sports cliche triumphant ending, but still kind of have a triumphant ending because Rocky resets the terms there. You know, he's kind of yeah, like, but he, he's already defined how, what winning now means. And, and it's, I'm not like saying this completely undercuts the moment. It's a nice moment. And I like how they reframe Rocky's sort of like goals there in the way you're yeah. talking about. I agree with that, but it does, it opens like a nice little side exit. So Rocky can have his triumph and the movie is also going to like not quote unquote, have him win. Yeah. But what you're describing as some kind of end around to me is actually just really nice scripting and a well-crafted narrative. And the fact that all he really needs to do, which 
seems impossible enough. Honestly, that's the thing. It's not like it's a given when you put yourself back in the position of watching this movie and knowing everything we know about Rocky as a fighter at that point, hanging in with Apollo for 15 rounds is actually something that seems like it will be very hard for him. To sure. Do. But for him to still be standing, that's it. That's that's all he wants. And to go back to what you were saying about that great line and that great exchange between Stallone and Talia Shire, you know the movie succeeds narratively for me because the moment where I got chills, and I actually did a little bit at the end of this movie, but it's not when he knocks down Apollo for the first time in Apollo's career or the impressive barrage of punches that he lands as the bell rings on round 15 or when the fight ends and he is still standing. It is actually, I guess I'm a sucker. I guess I am more sentimental than you, Josh. It's when Adrian gets in the ring. It's when Adrian sure. gets to the ring, the journey to the ring. She finally gets in. And when they say, I love you, that's the moment where I got chills. Not any of the sports movie triumph as undercut as it might be. I also, I guess I don't know enough about the legacy of sports movies, but I think of Rocky as the movie that set the template for sports movies. I know there were other sports movies before 1976, but I feel like every movie that came after it from Breaking Away to Hoosiers to the Karate Kid. Those are the movies that are all completely indebted to Rocky. And those are maybe all, or at least for the most part, movies that end with that triumphant moment. And this movie, like I said, I think just has much more modest expectations. And that's what won me over. So my confession is that if, if there was a, a twinge of a chill somewhere near my spine mm -hmm. <laughs> it was when they united in the, in the ring okay. i do think so that's nicely human. handled i am human turns out yes we think um <laughs> but but yeah and i think it's you know so there's some there's definitely some level of subversion going on there in that finale which i do think is interesting um but it really does come back to stallone for me i i, I just have to be more locked into to rocky as a character and and the best way I, i'm trying to think about what it is and and there's maybe for me, there's a lack of self-recognition on Stallone's part in how he's going to portray this guy. Because Stallone, I am sure, is a smart guy. He wrote this script, which I agree is ingeniously sentimental. Even if it's sentimental, it's ingeniously so. It, it's not, um, you know, generically so. We can both agree on that. He wrote and directed 2006's Rocky Balboa, which I think is genuinely good and incredibly sophisticated. So all that's to say Stallone is a smart guy. Can we also agree he doesn't present as, let's just say, book smart? Okay. Not he doesn't, at all. right? It's pretty That's, clear. He's it's not pretty right. clear as, no, I'm talking about Stallone. I'm okay. not talking about Rocky. The character this is playing here, right? This is the distinction I want to make. Stallone himself, as a screen presence, does not present as, let's just say, book smart. You know, he he's kind of has a glaze to his expressions. He naturally mumbles. Yeah, it's the voice. He, just, he has this mouth-breathing demeanor as a screen presence, okay, in all his parts. Rather than trust that um, and, and maybe, you know, just kind of go with that, Stallone, what he's decided to do here is double down on playing dumb he's he mumbles to the point of incoherence he literally makes animal sounds often to other animals i don't know what is going on why there are so many interactions with animals in this movie but it's it's like almost that's more rocky's co-star more stallone's co-star are these animals he basically plays rocky like a neanderthal he mumbles his mumbles and it is so performative he gives this guy so many character ticks if it's not the bouncing ball it's the constant shadow boxing and, and you know 
every mm-hmm. second yep. is so the rest of this movie we've talked already about the realism that the filmmaking brings to it and that there are elements of the screenplay that brings to it. And I just wish Stallone had settled down and allow that to be part of his performance as well. At the, at best, it's just not believable at worst. I do think it's condescending. Sometimes there are hints of something like Sean Penn in I am Sam or something like that. (laughs) I mean, this is, this is, I don't know how much I want to get into like this whole theme of intelligence basically with, Talia Shire's character as well with Adrian because there's weird things going on there as well but when it comes to Rocky himself I guess like just compare the scenes Adam of because they're fresh in our memory from this series of Rocky alone in his apartment mm-hmm. to those of Travis Bickle De Niro's Bickle in his oh, apartment taxi it. driver and how De Niro captures this complicated psychology in little ways tiny gestures uh even when he as well as talking out loud in his apartment mm-hmm. and Stallone just projects this lughead stereotype he has in his mind, maybe of people he knew, and he was enough of that guy. Stallone was enough of that guy just stepping on the set, and I'm not saying he's dumb. I want to be clear. Um, but he had that to his presence, and the fact that he doubles down on it so much is just incredibly mm. distancing to me. What you're describing is performative. I describe actually as for the most part subtle, and it's the quiet moments, oh, those come melancholy on. moments, Adam. the still moment. No, hundred percent, Josh. And in fact, subtle the, the part for sure. There are so many wonderful moments, like the exchange we already talked about, but there are others, including that moment early on in the film where Stallone and Avildsen. I think it's a perfect combination of what Shirley was in the script and how Avildsen frames it, where we get that just quiet moment coming out of the Spider Rico fight, where. He's looking at himself in the mirror, and then he sees the picture of his eight-year-old self. And I love that look that we get on Stallone's face. And I love the way he grabs the picture and studies it. And without actually having to express it to himself or anyone out loud, it conveys everything you need to know about how much of a disappointment he has been. It's as if that eight-year-old is staring back at him saying, well, look what you turned out to be. And you feel palpably that disappointment, how how lonely and how sad Rocky Balboa is in that moment. I think there are so many of those moments in this film. And actually, the, the shadow boxing you singled out as something that you hate, I love it. I feel like it's so natural to the character that it's such a physical performance. So much is conveyed with a look or the way he just kind of hunches his shoulders. Some of those ticks that you thought were over the top, I think he is very expressive naturally. And that shadow boxing thing, it just makes so much sense for this character. No, not because he's a boxer, but because it's something that I believe watching it isn't even conscious. He has no sense that he's doing that in the moment. It's not something his brain, Rocky the character, is thinking about or deciding to do. He just doesn't know how to exist in society any other way. He doesn't know how to move. He doesn't know how to be comfortable in himself any other way than to do that. And the repetition of boxing 
is a thing. So you find yourself repeating those moves even outside of the ring. I think it's perfect for the character. I guess that's why I find it reductive is I I feel like it's incredibly conscious on the part of Stallone that I'm going to have this shadow boxing. And every time I interact with someone, every time I'm going to give them a little fake punch. And I think it's reductive of the guy that this is how we're going to define this guy, that, that he, that this is all he can be. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it's more, I think it's more nuanced than that, but here's a question I didn't think I would ask tonight during this conversation the difference of course one of the differences between the i am sam comparison is he's playing in that movie pen is playing a certain type of character and here i would ask what's wrong with stallone embodying someone who's dumb what's wrong with having a dumb Abso- character on absolutely screen? not th- i can't even believe you're thinking that that's what I'm suggesting. My entire point is that I think it's laudable that this movie, let's have the intelligence question. I think it's laudable that this movie wants to concentrate on characters who may not be as quote unquote smart as what we get in Hollywood movies. Then what I want is, okay, let's bring some coherence and some dignity to those characters. And for Rocky himself, I think Stallone, by emphasizing this, you know, whatever you want to describe it, aspect of Rocky, he's not bringing, he's reducing him to these aspects of him as a personality. But I think this is also an interesting topic when it comes to Talia Shire's Adrian, because I, I'm very confused at what the movie is trying to get across here. Paulie, her brother says very early on, Adrian ain't sharp. There's another character who calls her retarded. And when she, we first meet her in the pet shop, with Rocky, we're not sure what her what her deal is. She's very quiet. She could just be shy. She could be creeped out by Rocky coming onto her. She could be. Um, we don't really know. But then later on, in a conversation with Rocky, she tells him that her mother told her to use her brains because she didn't have a body. So then we're trying to understand. Okay, is and she seems to take care of Polly. She runs. The, you know, she seems very capable. Then she undergoes a complete transformation, loses the glasses, becomes more talkative, dresses differently. So just in her character alone, I'm not sure what to make of it. And, and so I'm just curious what what is the movie trying to say about the character's intelligence? I, I for me, ultimately, neither portrayal does bring d- dignity to characters who I think aren't supposed to be quote white collar book smart. I, I think the movie is is interested in these people as they are, but I don't know that it brings that sort of dignity to them that that's what I demand that if a movie is going to have a character like this, that's what I want. Woo! You know how I got started in fighting? Huh? No. Am I talking too loud? Three no. minutes. My father, he's a uh, old man. It was never too smart. He says to me, you weren't born much of a brain, you know, so, uh, you better start using your body, right? So I've become a fighter. Oh. You know what I mean? <laughs> why are you, why you left? My mother, she said the opposite thing. What'd she say? What'd she say the opposite? She said you weren't born much of a body, so you better develop your brain. Did she say that? You! Time! Well, the reason why I had such a struggle earlier trying to decipher what you were saying is because you're basically saying the things that Stallone does as an actor to depict his character's intelligence and really who he is 
you don't like those things, but those things are what make the character what the character now, is. I'll go back so, to the beginning. Those things are amped up to 11. See, that's and that's the difference that obviously, you know, that's that's how you quantify it. I see it. I see it much lower on the spinal tap amp. I see it more at at four or five. So it's hard for me to connect with that. And I'll mention about Adrian. I think the the misjudgment of her as a character and the dignity the movie ultimately gives her is actually one of its more redeeming aspects because I love the scene where Polly loses it on her and I actually expected rewatching it and I kind of had it in my mind that maybe that was a scene where just like earlier in the film she would kind of just recoil and she would try to leave the room and she wouldn't have any of it and that moment would be kind of in a way about validating Polly's rage and it ends up being completely the opposite it ends up being the moment where she actually finally does rebuke him finally right. does lash well, out and says what did i do what do i owe you Polly? what do i owe you i treat you good i cook for you i clean for you i pick up your dirty clothes i take care of you Polly. i don't owe you nothing and you make me feel like a loser i'm not a loser you're busted yeah. she minimizes him so much in that scene and puts him in his place finally which obviously needed to be done so i i like the yeah i like the arc of adrian a lot i like the arc of her and rocky's character both being these people that are misjudged and who nobody gives really any credit to and when they finally come together and bring out something in each other here's that sentimental part of me again josh they do transform a little bit as people i'm willing to go with that well, the sentimentality is also in that scene where she gives it back to Polly because that this is the cleverness of the script. And it goes back to Creed's <laughs> Creed's statement is Stallone knows that's the scene we want. Now, has it been built up in the previous characterizations of her? The the her, I just think there's an incoherence there that that is a problem. I agree. That's the scene I want. I want to see her give it back to him. Um, and this is what, you know, Rocky does. This is why it's beloved, because it serves us what we what we inherently want. There's a great scene I do want to give um, both Stallone and Shire credit for and Avildsen as well and how it's filmed where I think they're good, and I will admit there is subtlety to Stallone's performance here, and that's the ice skating sequence. Their mm-hmm. first date, yeah. where he bribes the guy, it's closed, the rink, and they get to go out on the ice. Love the touch that Rocky doesn't get skates. Um, and I also love that the the um, camera gives them distance, you mm-hmm. know, gives them their privacy, um, and their conversation where they start to learn about each other a little bit. I think Stallone's at his best in that scene. Really, really sweet and really well filmed. So so that's one that does work for me that I'll admit there's a little subtlety to. Yeah, I love that scene as well. And I was just thinking about something you said earlier, not necessarily a refutation, Josh, of any of the points you were making about Stallone. But you were talking about how Stallone maybe doesn't present himself naturally as overly smart, though he probably is and of course, I'm willing to go along with that as well. But I wonder, isn't it more likely that this performance, whether you liked it or not, or found it convincing or not, was actually so convincing that it's this character that became the character, of course, that defined Stallone? Everybody then perceives Stallone as a certain type of person because of the way he so inhabits the dimness of Rocky Balboa. So this is where I'm going to go to Rocky Balboa, the the film that he wrote and directed, being so great because I think it exactly 
recognizes that possibility and wrestles all within the character of Rocky and wrestles with what Stallone's career became in the wake of that. Honestly, for some choices of his own, it's a very, very much a work of self-critique and it does this all within the Rocky ethos. So I think there is some validity to that, but I, w- I would also say, you know, look at all the other performances that Stallone has given. And I don't think is this is like the only one where you would say that about him as an actor. So I'm, I'm certain that is a factor that comes into play. But again, I, I went into this mm-hmm. wanting to like have as blank of a slate as I could. Right. And I'm no, and I, I can also say I'm no Stallone completist. So it's not like I have this ironclad um, picture of him in my head from watching all of his movies. Well, before we turn the page on the performance Completely. And it's funny, as we're talking, I actually have the movie on in the background silently, and I'm watching another great acting showcase for both of the performers in it. It's the the scene where Mickey comes to Rocky's apartment and tries to convince him to take him on as his manager. I think they're both incredible in that scene. But I want to give a little bit of time to a listener and actually to our producer, too. I'm bringing in reinforcements here, Josh, to try to, you know, take the upper hand here in the fight. Because like you, you don't already have the whole world on your side. Yeah, good point. <laughs> but I, I, like, I like what they have to say. This morning, Sam said to me how much he loved Stallone's performance as well because of how he goes out of his way. This is your issue, but how he goes out of his way to make Rocky truly and believably dim. And he points out the detail of thinking he's forgotten his locker combination and pulling the piece of paper out of his hat. What a great moment. I agree. It is one of those great moments, one of those great character touches. And Dylan Dom, a listener from Blair, Nebraska, wrote in with the three reasons why he really loves this movie. And these two, I think, are really connected. He says, tenderness. Stallone's script gives Rocky so many wonderful moments of humanity and naivete. This is a guy that fights not because he wants to, but because he doesn't know what else to do. A guy that has to wear glasses and write down notes about the legs he has to break like he's making a grocery list. A guy that puts a billboard on his robe to help out his buddy. There isn't an ounce of pretension to him and the film is so much better for it. The other reason that he mentions here is Stallone. I think it's hard for people to think of Stallone in this film without thinking about the 40 years of mostly mediocrity that have followed it, but he truly is great. As Ebert said, there is a hint of young Brando to him here. The biggest mistake Stallone ever made was creating the sequels. If this were a standalone film, I think we'd look at this as one of the best sports movie performances ever. You disagree. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've I've covered, I, I've heard, I've heard those arguments, and um, it's not what I see on screen. It's not what I experienced. Okay, well, but I can we get wanna... to some of the things that can yeah. we get to like some of the filmmaking, which, sure. as I said, was, you know, where I came around a little bit more on things I appreciated that I maybe didn't notice before. You mentioned, you know. Bill Conti's music and those horns. I mean, the way this thing begins, it's not messing around. The first thing we hear are the horns and we see the title itself is too big for the screen, right? The big block letters. Um, So I like that kind of brazen announcement of the movie, Uh, even though it might be at odds with the realism that I think we both appreciate. Otherwise, you know what I thought of, speaking of the realism, is another movie from 76, Elaine May's Mikey and Nikki. I mean, a lot of the kind of like the street scenes and just the the people populating them gave me that same sort of feel. You talked, Adam, about the scene, the Rocky scene, running up the steps in Triumph. What I had forgotten and what I really appreciated is how there are three training montages here that are staggered so that it leads up to that one. So we don't just get that one. The first Mm -hmm. one is at dawn. It's slow. 
There's sad music that you talked about that you appreciated. Rocky's clearly exhausted, not totally in shape yet. And then we get a second one later on where he's got the dog with him. The music's picked up a little bit. People are starting to cheer him on. Then we get to that third mega one where it's the full horns, the triumph at the top of the steps. But again, this is just where I have a hole in my heart. By the time they turn to slow motion when he's up there, like it's it's just like too much, guys. It's a little it's like, cheesy I, 70s I, filmmaking for I sure, have, Josh. I want to look away. I just again, I'm not <laughs> sentimental. I'm embarrassed. Wow. I'm embarrassed for the movie. But one more filmmaking touch I wanted to, to mention is the Apollo Creed match. Yeah. Really nice combination. Overhead covered shots, tight chaotic close-ups, and then these medium shots where I like how we can hear them kind of saying things to each other as they're boxing. So, so yeah, those are some of the things that I did appreciate about it. Well, I'm glad you pointed those things out because this is a movie that certainly doesn't really belong in the same conversation as the other films we've talked about, the other Best Picture nominees, All the President's Men, Taxi Driver, and Network. But I still don't think you can't say it isn't artfully shot, certainly in moments, or at least that it's not shot without purpose. The camera, and this is hard to pick up on sometimes, but I truly believe it. The camera is in the right place almost always. You mentioned the streets of Philadelphia. It's not just that the streets are dirty and there's garbage everywhere. It's the way they're shot so that every time a character is walking down the street, or a lot of times when characters are in frame, it's at that diagonal kind of angle. There's deeper focus. So you're taking in the expanse of the street in almost all of these shots. And I think there's a real nice combination of static images there and also tracking shots that showcase these characters within that space. I'll even go to a moment too that was clearly a deliberate choice in both the production design and the composition where when Paulie loses it in that scene and he's got the baseball bat and he's hitting it against the the bureau or whatever it is, It's framed in such a way where there's always that picture of him very noticeable in the shot. And what's that picture? It looks like him. Maybe the day he probably graduated from the Navy or got out of the Navy military. Something. It's him. It's him. Just like the eight year old Stallone, who at that moment has nothing but hope and promise thinks he's full of potential. The whole world is ahead of him. And what a disappointment he's turned out to be. Right. And that's, that's there. It's reminding him and it's reminding us there in that scene. So I do think there's a lot of great choices there. And you mentioned that opening sound of the horns, the fanfare, and Rocky on screen. That brazen announcement doesn't just clash with most of the rest of the movie. It clashes with what immediately follows it. I think by design, us then going into that Spider-Rico fight where that is just the dregs, right? I mean, it's just the bottom barrel of humanity and certainly of boxing there in that moment. So I think that that ironic juxtaposition there is very much by design. And You mentioned Travis Bickle, thought about him as well during some of those scenes. I mean, I even thought about Howard Beale to go back to network, where you think about these characters who are both trying to assert themselves to show the world that they matter. I think we can read into Howard Beale, and we certainly know about Travis Bickle, that they are overwhelmingly lonely. I feel that with Rocky as well. The key difference is Rocky has none of the anger. He has none of the anger and true bitterness and rage that those men have. But before Howard Beale yells the famous line about I'm mad as hell and I don't want to take it anymore, he says, I'm a human being. My life has value. So I want you to get up now. And then the line comes. But it's just about saying to the world, I'm a human being. And I think ultimately, Rocky is just trying to assert the same thing. And I also like how 
the characters, Polly and Nikki, do fit into this overall tale of it being 1976, the centennial. And it's very clearly a movie that is commenting on, if not purely reinforcing, the American dream. And if you talk about this movie as one that's about that, and it's this inspirational story, I'd say the most American thing about it, and this is something I think we can be critical of and connect with at the same time, is that once Rocky has any kind of shot at success, what happens? The people closest to him, other than Adrian, they try to take advantage of him. Rocky's shot is finally Paulie's shot, is finally Mickey's shot as well. And we've seen that play out in American culture and in sports again and again and again. And I mentioned that scene that I love in the apartment where Stallone lets him talk. Rocky lets Mickey talk. He moves around in that apartment almost like a fighter. He's not shadowboxing Josh, but he's not standing still. He's not letting Mickey dig in. He's constantly keeping him on his toes. And then he comes in and hits him with the uppercut, just like he hits Apollo Creed in that first scene. He says, yeah, I got heart, but I ain't got no locker, do I, Mick? And you see how it stuns him. And from then on, Mickey's flailing, you know, and, and Rocky's right. But Mickey's not necessarily wrong either, you know, and, and Rocky does need him. And there's another example, even going back to that opening scene, right? What about the guy who bets on him? That guy who needs the money, it seems, very desperately, and he tells him, yeah, I'll last. I'll last three rounds, or maybe I'll go ahead and win it. He even makes money off Rocky there in that scene. There's always someone in America who's ready to pounce and exploit whatever you got. And that's one of the reasons I love the scene, and maybe we could talk a little bit more about race in this movie and Apollo Creed. One of the reasons I love the scene you mentioned, it's actually the one or two lines right before the ones you recited, where he specifically calls out, him choosing this fighter and him being Snow White on purpose, obviously. And in this case, this is not a black man being exploited by America, but the black man exploiting America and its sentimentality and its needs for this great white hope. He's going to use it to his advantage. Yeah, that, I mean, no doubt Creed is the smartest guy in the picture For that sure. we see. And I do think the 76 setting is fascinating to this degree as well. You know, this may have been exactly the movie that audiences needed in 76 when we talk about the disillusionment of the era and so forth. And and so it kind of feeds into that. This is part of the sentimentality question, too. And that may be part of, obviously, it's still beloved today, but why it was such an instant success right at that time. Now, running through all those highlights, Adam, you left one scene out. This hmm. sort of touches on race. What in the world is with the white doo-wop singers on the street corner with the fire can <laughs> singing their song. I, I'm watching this thinking Rocky passes by him, you know, gives him a few jabs. That's what he does. And I'm thinking, <laughs> who, are these, who are these people? Where are they from? Then I realized over the credits. Is it Frank Stallone? It, it's his brother. I Frank called that Stallone's out. I saw it. I didn't know it, back. but I saw it. So I saw it. I guess that sort of explains yeah, why that's the that whole reason. thing happened. <laughs> I'm like, that guy singing with that obnoxiously long curly hair, I think that's Frank Stallone, which explains this scene. Mm -hmm. It it's, <laughs> stands out a little bit. Well, I'm glad that we ended this discussion by talking about Frank Stallone. Somewhere <laughs> in the world, he's overjoyed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you had some nice things to say about it, Josh, and I will take it, even if you didn't completely come around on either Rocky or Stallone. 
I'm here to serve. I'm sure the masses will be satisfied as well. (laughs) Rocky is available to rent on most platforms. It's free to HBO Max subscribers currently. If you have seen the movie recently or long in the past and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. I can live with us disagreeing over Rocky Adam, but we better be of the same mind when it comes to Detour. The latest title in our 40s noir marathon is up next. Plus, there's a clear champion in Film Spotting Madness this year. We'll declare the winner of our best of the 80s bracket when we come back. Stay with us. Just when I thought we were done with Godzilla versus Kong, you're listening to Film Spotting and Josh, Godzilla's hurting people. Do we know why? I think it's because we woke him up from a nap. Tell me I'm wrong. I know why, but I can't tell you, Adam, because that would be a spoiler. And and I know you can't wait to go see Godzilla versus Kong. So I would, I would yeah. hate to do that to you. I wanted to see it so badly when we had the opportunity to force ourselves to see it, to talk about it on the show. Instead, we did our own riff on Godzilla versus Kong. A really fun conversation, at least for me to be a part of. Josh, a double sacred cow review of 33's King Kong and 54's Godzilla, the OGs. We were both quite favorable on both films, but I did come out Team Godzilla. You were Team Kong. You did decide to check out the new Godzilla v. Kong, though I'm going to say... Maybe that had something more to do with actually getting out of the house and seeing a movie for the first time in ages at our much adored Music Box Theater in Chicago. So tell me, was it worth the trip? And where does Godzilla versus Kong come out on our metaphorical weight scale? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Did we give those things numbers? I forget. But uh, grades, scores. Oh, man. I cannot tell you. I can't describe what it felt like to be in that lobby again. I mean, this is you and I saw Tenet. I think that was probably the last film Mm -hmm. uh, we both saw in theaters. And so is Godzilla versus Kong getting the first movie back in a theater bump from me? Probably. I'll admit that up front. I, I do think we made the right choice in revisiting those classics instead of giving this a full review. I enjoyed it, but it's, you know, nowhere near either of those pictures. The metaphorical weight, uh, you know, it's it's still got a little bit carried over. Uh, I think we spent a lot of time talking about Kong in particular um, and the idea of um, the abuse of nature, the exploitation of nature, that metaphor in the original Kong. And you do get that here because I was surprised, Adam, uh, this is very much a Kong movie. Uh, they, you know, I, mean, I won't tell you how the fight itself turns out, but in terms of screen time and narrative weight, uh, they spend a lot of time on Kong. And what I liked about it is that the director, Adam Wingard, and his team of special effects um, 
artists, wizards, they they really find a way to give Kong a personality, just little touches. The narrative is there too. We open with Kong in this containment sphere that's meant to look like his home of Skull Island and he knows it's not, so he's trying to escape. And so the entire movie is kind of one of the narrative threads is his longing for home. So we have that, but also the animation, he just... For example, he headbutts Godzilla at one point. That is just a great, like, personal touch. Later on, Godzilla throws out his Kong's shoulder. And so to reset it, he kind of slams his shoulder against a skyscraper, which is a ridiculous, you know, moment that also is kind of awesome. So there were enough things like that. Kong had enough personality to carry me over. And yes, I was back at the music box. I had a good time. So who wins Godzilla v. Kong v. Rocky? Oh, Man, poll, poll, film spotting poll. We know Rocky doesn't like headbutts either. You saw what he did to Spider Rico. Yeah, I mean, that he actually took that pretty well. I, I don't know. That's to your point about Rocky not having much of a temper. So yeah. he would not last. I mean, even, no. even like a 200 foot tall Rocky, you got to have a little bit more anger if you're going to go against Kong, I think, or mm. Godzilla. Well, listening to you, Josh, on one hand, I'm a little bit miffed for Godzilla who I thought was such a fascinating, more sympathetic movie monster in 1954's version compared to 1933's King Kong. I'm a little miffed that maybe this movie favors Kong a little bit, but maybe that's just balancing things out a little bit, and I should welcome it. I'll also say this. I didn't think I had any intention of seeing this movie. And then over Easter weekend, I was talking to one of my nephews, who said, I saw Godzilla versus Kong. I said, great, what did you think? And he pretty much repeated what I've heard from anybody just kind of anecdotally, which was, well, it's pretty terrible, but the fight scenes are pretty cool. And then he said, can I spoil it for you? And my instinct was to say, of course you can. Mm -hmm. I do kind of want to know who ultimately wins, but not enough to see the movie. But then I paused and I thought, there's a chance. Mm. There's a chance I see it. And so now I know that actually somewhere deep inside my heart, yeah. I actually want to see this film. Well, you know, uh, the new release calendar is pretty dry looking ahead, Adam. We, we might yes. just get to it yet. <laughs> Godzilla versus Kong is currently in theaters, including, yes, at Chicago's Music Box Theater. It is also playing on HBO Max for a limited time. Next week... On Film Spotting, we'll have our annual Oscars special. The Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips will join us for our Oscar picks. Now, this has always taken the form or traditionally has taken the form of us sharing who we think will win, even though we have no clue and we always do terribly at that part. Who should win? And we're better at this. Who should have been nominated? Yes. And I think the wrinkle we usually add for ourselves is if we're going to suggest someone who should have been nominated, that does mean we have to subtract someone. We don't just get to throw in unlimited spots. Now, on-air production meeting, Mm -hmm. do you have any other thoughts on how we should approach the Oscars? Should we do something different this year? Or does that tried-and-true format work for you, Josh? I mean, I I like it. I don't have any brilliant new idea. And I really do like the having to drop someone because it wasn't too long ago we were going through, I was, NBA All-Star Talk. And that always drives me nuts is everyone complains that their team's player didn't get chosen for the All-Star team. And and they never say, okay, well, then who would you take off, right? Who's Who's got to go mm-hmm. to get your guy on? That's what we would force ourselves to do. So I like that angle. Well, if I talk quickly enough next week, can I get away with taking off 
Vanessa Kirby because I still didn't make time oh. to watch pieces of a woman. Can I do that, Josh? I, you just invalidated our entire show, Adam. So <laughs> now we can't do it. Well, we want to know your favorite among the eight Best Picture nominees. You can vote in that poll now at filmspotting.net. The question on the main page of our website is, which of the 2021 Best Picture nominees would get your vote, Josh, in alphabetical order? They are The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. Now, we, of course, are going to wait to give our picks until next week's show, even though if you listen to the show regularly, you know which movie we think should win because we did our top 10 films of the year. And I have two movies from the best picture list of nominees that made my top 10, one quite high. Now, Josh, I think that's true of you as well. At least one that made your top 10. I don't believe so. I don't have a top 10 lister on here this, this is my okay. somewhat disinterested um year for the oscars though there's there's a clear front runner for me and if yeah listeners want a spoiler i did rank the nominees on letterbox so that's what i'm thinking about i know for sure there's one of these movies that was at least in your top 15 please don't tell me i'm wrong a second time i believe that is correct yes okay so we'll see if i remember your list correctly <laughs> on next week's show again that poll is at filmspotting.net over on the next picture show, that's our sister podcast. It's part two of their Tina Turner pairing. They are looking at the new Tina doc, which is on HBO. Previously, they discussed 1993's What's Love Got to Do With It? Looking ahead, they've got a very interesting pairing coming up. It's the new Nobody, that one with Bob Odenkirk, and 1999's The Limey from Steven Soderbergh starring Terrence Stamp. I have not seen Nobody, but anytime someone wants to talk about the limey, I am in, so I can't wait for this episode. Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of the Next Picture Show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more info at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support the show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get ad-free episodes, you get early show downloads, a merch discount, and monthly bonus episodes. Just a few weeks ago, we shared a preview of 2022's Film Spotting Madness, took people behind the scenes, a little inside baseball, a best of the 70s preview with our producer, Sam Van Halgren. We talked about the movies that will at least be on the short list for 2022 that we haven't seen our most egregious blind spots of the movies that we know we have as homework and also the movies that we think are most likely or most deserving of being top 10 seeds had a lot of overlap there, but some disagreement as well. So good show there. If you are a family member on Patreon and you also as a family member have the opportunity to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events next week, Josh, we're up with another I know what you did last trivia spotting. Yes, it is an all 90s edition. So I've been thinking, you know, we did all 80s edition last time, and we both felt like children of the 80s. We should have known those movies pretty well. Do you think maybe this is a better shot for us to actually put on a better performance? Because hopefully we were paying no. more attention. I'm just <laughs> no. I'm trying to be have a positive outlook at them after our disastrous right. performance. Hopefully in the 90s, we were paying more attention to those movies. We saw and have nostalgic feelings towards a lot of the 80s movies, but right. I, I, might, might we maybe do a little better? 
No. No. <laughs> okay, Hades great. was my best shot at glory. And <laughs> that was I blew it. it. All right. I blew it. That is patreon.com slash film spotting where you can sign up to be a family member. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is madness. But this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! Well, I don't know about for you, Josh, but for me, it's always a little sad to hear that film spotting madness drop for the last time, for this year anyway. Well, it's sad because it means we've sent, what, 63 at least great films to the incinerator. That's right. No one should feel good about that. That's, that's true, Josh. A very somber, sobering thought. And there's not a whole lot of somber, sober thought given to Film Spotting Madness. 64 films, only one survives. It's our annual bracket-style tournament that does inevitably last much longer than the actual March Madness tournament. And it's finally time to announce this year's winner, Josh, fighting for the championship in one corner, Spike Lee, do the right thing, versus a surprise, an underdog, the fourth seed up against the number two seed. It's Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Before we get to the results, let's get to some feedback. And one listener, Todd S., starts us off in a very pithy manner. He says the correct choice is literally telling us all how to vote in its title. He's He's got a point there. We also heard from Mitchell Bupre, a regular at our trivia spotting events. Never in my wildest dreams would I have imagined a final as beautiful as this. Two movies that I have watched more times than I can count. Two movies that feel so distinct, so evocative, so immersive in every way. I could never get tired of watching either. Yet the choice is clear for me. We've got to do the right thing. Shoshana Rosenbaum says, After George Floyd's murder this summer, my husband and I talked with our three kids about what happened and what we could do to help heal our country. In addition to reading books and articles and participating in protests, we sat down together as a family to watch a film. The film we chose was Do the Right Thing. I first saw it as a high school student in 1989 and was deeply affected by it then. In the summer of 2020, I found that it not only held up, it felt vital and necessary. Rather than being preachy or didactic, it raises questions and leads to dialogue. The Shining is a great movie, but Do the Right Thing deserves the title of Best of the 80s. Well, and and how about the timing of the Derek Chauvin trial for George Floyd's Mm -hmm. killing going on right now? Thanks, Shoshana. We also heard from Darwin Perrier. I did the bracket with my wife, and we had opposing opinions about the final matchup. She voted for Do the Right Thing, and I voted The Shining. In my humble opinion, Do the Right Thing may be more important for our time, but The Shining is a better made film. More importantly, in the bracket contest, I am currently in the top 50, and my wife is in the top 300. If The Shining wins, I come out in the top 30. If Do the Right Thing wins, my wife is in the top 50 and beats me. Go Shining. Wow. (laughs) I mean, it's not about cinema. No. Cinema doesn't matter here. It's just about taking down your spouse. Mm -hmm. Very honorable, Darwin. (laughs) Well, I'm afraid Darwin is going to have a rough go of it Mm -hmm. at home because our winner of Film Spotting Madness 2021, the best film of the 1980s, according to Film Spotting listeners. And I do not begrudge them this choice one bit. It is Do the Right Thing over The Shining, 59% to 41%. Not something I predicted, Adam, but something I am delighted, delighted to see. And that, I would say, fair, fairly decisive for a championship bout, 59% to mm-hmm. 41%. Not bad. I probably would have predicted at the beginning of this that Do the Right Thing would beat The Shining if it came down to that. 
by a wider margin. But then I never would have imagined The Shining would be as adored as it clearly is, at least by our listeners, to make it all the way to the championship. I certainly thought it could make it to the Final Four or at least the Elite Eight, but taking down Raging Bull and then losing only by 18% to do the right thing, a good, good run for The Shining. Do the right thing's path to victory, not bad. Formidable 1980s foes here. Spike beat his fellow NYU grad or alum, Oliver Stone, Wall Street in round one, then the right stuff, Ghostbusters, The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and The Shining. Yeah, it, it's Empire and Raiders that I would not have predicted at all. That That's a really impressive run. You. No, I mean, as we can see, as we will soon see, I did not. Yeah, there was a third place consolation matchup that was Raiders of the Lost Ark versus Raging Bull. And this one was a little easier. Raiders, 63%. Raging Bull, just 37. We will have to see next week how Michael Phillips feels about that. I'm sure he will be quite dismayed. John. Yes, I'm sure. The only consolation I have about all the rage I'm going to get for not loving Rocky is that it won't compare to what Michael hears about Raiders no. of the Lost Ark. No, he is still hearing about it like eight years later after reviewing it on the show with us. And people, you know, no offense, but people might find the Rocky discussion and the Rocky take a little more forgettable than that. Well, they're, they're, they're used to it from me. I think Adam, that's what you're trying to say. Well, we don't have the exact final numbers here because we haven't tabulated the full results. We don't want the world to see it. We want the world to hear who won and they'll be able to check out the final bracket when this show drops. But here's what we know out of 812 bracket predictions that were submitted. Our leader heading into the championship round was Andy Hampton from Madison, Wisconsin. He was in a virtual dead heat for first place with listener Tarek Shukri. Both Andy and Tarek picked the correct final four and the correct final two. Andy had slightly more total correct picks in the tournament, 55 to 52 for Tarek. That means it did all come down to who predicted the final pick. Andy had do the right thing. Tarek had the shining. So the winner of the 2021 bracket contest is Andy Hampton. There you go. We heard from Andy. I listen from Madison, Wisconsin these days, but started listening 10 years ago in my college days in Texas. I'm a 90s kid, so not all that nostalgic for the 80s, and I think that might have helped me. Sure, we've got heavyweights like Do the Right Thing, Blade Runner, and others. Heck, Fanny and Alexander is my favorite movie of all time, and that early landslide loss was crushing. But in general, I feel about the 80s how Michael Phillips feels about Raiders. Given all that, I would say my strategy was more of cold intuition, informed by a decade's worth of polls and community discussion, rather than drawn-out decisions, especially indicated in my now mildly embarrassing untitled entry. That's right. Everyone else, almost everyone else, had a very clever name, though I should point out I didn't come up with any kind of clever name. I'm not that clever. Andy did have just untitled. Doesn't matter. He wins it all. He gets the last laugh there. Congratulations, Andy. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. And we'll set you up with your prize pack. We didn't ever define what that prize pack was. Your prize pack is you don't have to watch the next Adam Sandler Netflix movie. You do not have to do that. That's true. You'll also definitely get a Film Spotting t-shirt. Okay. And, you know, I'll go into that, that bin behind me, the library behind me here, Josh, where I've got movies on DVD and Blu-ray that I've got duplicates of, Mm. some other great movie books. And you know what? Maybe some of that might find its way 
over to Andy. Congratulations. Very impressive. For our internal bracket contest that's between you, me, producer Sam, and Madness Godfather Mike Merrigan, it came down to our picks, just like Andy and Tarek, for which film would win it all. Now, Mike went with Raising Arizona. Yeah. That got bounced in round two. Mm Mm-hmm. You went with The Empire Strikes Back. That lost in the Elite Eight to eventual winner. Do the right thing. Yeah. Nothing to sneeze at. At least I went down to the champ. I went with Raiders of the Lost Ark, which did lose its final four matchup to do the right thing. But as we heard, did take third place overall in the tournament. Not bad by me, but Sam went with Do the Right Thing. Hmm. He won it. He takes it clearly. Not that it matters because it's only about who loses. (laughs) And this year, that was Mike. Which means, Josh, we are spared Sandler. We are. I still don't count it a victory, though, because to me, it's only a victory if I'm spared Sandler and you're not. I, I feel I feel bad when Sam has to watch the Sandler. Right. I feel terrible when Mike has. Poor Mike. When Mike has it's, to. That's I mean, just what the worst. Did he do? What did he do except give us this idea? <laughs> right. And also, we featured feedback from him before. An essential worker. Yes. An essential healthcare worker who has certainly suffered enough had to be quarantined and separated from his family and now for this. a long time. And now this, the indignity of losing Film Spotting Madness. And when he finally gets to you know, come back in the house mm-hmm. and spend time with his family, he's going to have to be away from them. Yes, I know. Watching Adam Sandler's latest. <laughs> Sorry, I must fulfill my duty. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do conclude Film Spotting Madness Best of the 80s. But of course, the madness, it never ends, Josh, because we already had that bonus show. For our patrons talking about and looking ahead to the 70s best of that will come next year. We gave our patrons a sneak peek at the shortlist, 133 titles. And there are a lot of people like us who have a lot more blind spots for the 70s than they do the 80s. So they appreciated that heads up. And I've seen some of the family members we follow on Letterboxd logging movies already from the best of seventies list. So they're getting an early jump, which is one of the benefits you get if you are a family member on Patreon, but we will give all of you an early look as well. Expect in the next week or two, we will post that full shortlist over on letterbox. We'll link to it on our website and we will of course mention it here on the show. Would you believe Adam that I already have five different prediction brackets mapped out and I'm just trying to choose which one I'll be submitting next year. I don't believe that. Sorry. Oh, I don't believe it. I know how you feel about Madness. We may get you to come around at some point. For full Madness results and the results of previous tournaments, visit filmspotting.net slash madness. Why should I believe you? You got all the earmarks of a cheap crook. Now, wait a minute. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. For two cents, I'd change my mind and turn you in. I don't like you. All right, all right. Don't get sore. I'm not getting sore, but just remember who's boss around here. If you shut up and don't give me any arguments, you'll have nothing to worry about. But if you act wise, well, Mr. You pop in the jail so fast it'll give you the bends. I'm not arguing. Well, see that you don't. The impeccably named Anne Savage with Tom Neal in 1945's Detour. It's the next film in our 40s noir marathon. Detour was directed by Edgar G. Ulmer, who I want to get to know a lot better after this, Adam, with its prominent use of voiceover, its shadowy black and white cinematography, and its characters battered by fate, Detour is true noir, probably in ways that the previous entries in this marathon maybe haven't been. We started with William Wyler's noirish melodrama, The Letter. Then we went to Frank Tuttle's wartime propaganda crime caper, This Gun for Hire, and 
Most recently, Otto Preminger's Haunted Whodunit, Laura. Fair to say those all had noir elements for sure, uh, but weren't quite as purely noir as this. They certainly didn't have the classic noir hard-boiled dialogue. For sure. Like Detour has. Yep. Detour opens with Tom Neal's bitter, broke, and exhausted piano player, Al Roberts, trying to hitchhike from New York to L.A., laying out his situation in some of that dialogue. His luck appears to change when he's offered a ride the rest of the way from the shady Charles Haskell Jr., played by Edmund McDonald. Spoiler, Roberts' luck runs out pretty quickly, and things only get worse once he hooks up with Savage's Vera, a fellow hitchhiker. We got to start with Savage. I think, Adam, we've hmm. already referenced her a number of times. At what point in her performance did you just let out a guffaw of appreciation? <laughs> well, I appreciated her the moment we first see her on screen. Yeah, There is that wonderful touch of her standing along the side of the road, and we're still hearing the echoes of Mr. Haskell Jr. telling us the stories of how he got those scars from a woman that he picked up along the way. And when he says to her, hey, if you want to ride, jump on in. And the way the camera lingers on her and the way she slowly looks. And we understand in that moment something that obviously he doesn't. And that's that's always fun in cinema. I think it's the old Wilder line that he stole from Lubitsch about when the audience does the math and does two plus two equals four before the characters do. There's some fun suspense in that. Especially before he does. Especially in noir, right? Is. Yeah, especially noir. So we know what's to come. And it's just a matter of when and how and how bad it's going to be for him. I did love this performance. And my question to put back on you is how much did she remind you of Betty Davis? That oh, wow. Toxic manner of speaking like she's spitting venom with every line. And here's my favorite. You want to talk about true guffaw? I mean, I love certain moments. Some of them are just silent moments, the way she looks at him oh, yes. in the car. But my favorite by far is that hellish night they spend together, that first night in that little apartment or whatever they rent when they get to L.A. And he asks her where the cigarettes are. And you want to talk about not being able to do justice to a line or moment? She says, on the table, sucker. <laughs> <laughs> and it just leveled me. Yeah. I would not have expected that we would get uh, a performance that was better in the same way, I should say, than Betty Davis in this marathon uh, after opening with her in the letter. And wow, I mean, Savage makes Davis look calm. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I mean that as a compliment. I mean, this is, this is a performance that's going 120 miles per hour and for this movie absolutely needs to be. My guffaw came, you mentioned the way she looks at him. I went back after watching the movie, Adam, to count it. There is a point where she's in the car next to him, just berating him. Once she's figured out that he's, he's in deep trouble and she's going to manipulate right. him for this, right? She goes 34 seconds of berating him with those wild eyes and does not blink once. And I think I held my breath until they, the scene yeah. either cuts or she blinks. And I just laughed because it is such a powerful performance. And it, it's not just that it's entertaining. It's the way it's subverting the gender expectations of this genre. I mean, we, we can't really rightly call her a femme fatale. I don't think that's no, what she is. Can't. She's, 
seduction is sort of involved. Um, I mean, she kind of like, that's one of the tools she tries to employ. Almost half-heartedly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, you can tell it's, she's, she's not that interested in it. It doesn't go very far, but it's really a mixture of seduction, extortion, and just brute force. And, And that's the distinguishing part in terms of the gender roles here. It's not that she manipulates Roberts. It's that she dominates him and dominates and the other distinction every moment every moment the other distinction is that she is unapologetic here's another davis comparison right she's unapologetic about her dented moral compass and what was really interesting to me what was most entertaining to me was savage's performance what was most interesting to me was the question of guilt and robert's um understanding of his guilt and this is where she has no qualms about anything they're doing and recognizes he does. And she's going to exploit that. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what makes every interaction between the two of them fascinating. So your idea was to drive the car a little way, maybe into San Bernardino and then leave it. You weren't going to sell it? Sell it? You think I'm crazy? Somebody else's car? See, all I want to do is leave it somewhere and forget I ever saw it. Not only don't you have any scruples, you don't have any brains. I don't get you. Maybe it's a good thing you met me. You'd have got yourself caught sure. Why, you dope. Don't you know a deserted automobile always rates an investigation? Huh? Look, the cops find a car. Then they get curious. They wonder where the owner is. So, all right, they don't trace Haskell. They trace you. I never thought of that. The only safe way to get rid of the car is to sell it to a dealer. Get it registered under a new name. Say, stop at the next store. I want to get a bottle and do some shopping before we hit L.A. I knew this movie was going to be a trip, a nasty, (laughs) rewarding trip, four minutes in, in the diner, and Al is sitting there, Tom Neal, looking so bedraggled. I don't think I've ever said that word in my life, Josh, but detour, detour brings that out of me. He just looks awful, and... The lighting changes dramatically. Now, it's not just that touch, though, actually. I mean, it works. He's dramatically then shrouded in black. The stripe of light across his eyes. This is where it really starts to feel like, okay, yeah, we're watching film noir. The inner monologue starts, the voiceover. We're starting to transition to the past. There we get the flashback that's so customary with noir. The story we're going to see play out, it's going to start to unfold here in this moment. And it all begins with a tilt down from his face to his coffee mug. Except it's not a normal coffee mug. It's not the coffee mug he was sitting with just a few seconds ago. It seems gigantic. The mug fills up the entire frame almost. And it's so visible that you can actually make out all the little details and dents in it, all the wear and tear on the mug. And just with that camera move and that expressionistic kind of production design choice and lighting, you know that we're about to go down the rabbit hole. We're entering some kind of hellscape between reality and between fantasy that completely matches this character's tormented psychological state and there's a bunch of touches like that there are. in this movie right like creativity born out of necessity very clear that omer here is making the most out of a very limited budget not too long after that scene when we get into the flashback how about that stroll home from the club with sue his lover his girl the woman he thinks he's going to marry her heart's not quite as into it as his is they leave that club they're in new york city 
How do we know they're in New York City, Josh? Because we see a street sign <laughs> we, or two. We like, see many street drive. signs. <laughs> yeah, you see street signs, and you even at one point pass a lone cop on the street. You don't even see his face. He just has his back turned. But it's just like a little touch. Oh, we'll, we'll throw this extra in to literally stand in just to give the impression that they're in a city. They would have cops patrolling the beat late at night. And how do you then cover that all up? Make it make it expressive, but also not make it too obvious to the audience that you're just on a soundstage? Smoke. Oh, yeah. Lots, Lots of smoke. Fog, for and sure. The longer they walk and the more confused and hurt he gets by her saying that she's leaving for L.A., the more unclear his life gets, the more unclear the environment gets with that fog developing around them by the end you can barely even see the characters yeah i think that 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 visual and that psychological symmetry is there again yeah that whole sequence you almost wonder if there's some coverage going on there because we'll get them walking for a while and then it fades to a street sign and focuses on the street sign then we get them again walking and then the next street sign so it's obviously communicating that they're moving forward they're traveling right. but it's also yes. like they could there could be like some scenes that were missing here that they had to cover this far but it works it works and yeah Ulmer so many interesting camera movements here a name that I was vaguely aware of but certainly you know not as prominent as some of the other names in this marathon and we've talked about how some of the other films were um, you know the filmmaking was a little more reserved than we normally associate with noir. Not reserved here at all, um, but also very on point, not over the top. I had to, you know, look up some information about him, found out he he was, was an assistant with F.W. Murnau before becoming a director of his own. And that was on two masterpieces, The Last Laugh and Sunrise. And as for his own career as a director, made dozens of pictures from the 30s to the 60s, mostly B-movies like this. A lot of them overseas for low-budget production companies, a lot of them lost, so probably working in similar conditions. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, French auteurist critics in the 60s kind of reclaimed him. I, I looked him up in Ephraim Katz's film encyclopedia and just had a really great description of, of his work here. It says, amazingly, an unmistakable mark of a personal style can be discerned throughout much of his grade Z body of work. And that makes perfect sense after just seeing mm -hmm. this. I mean, I think the next thing I would love to go to is an earlier film he made, 1934's The Black Cat from the uh, Pope home with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. I mean, can you imagine something like that in Ulmer's hands after after seeing this, which is just fantastic direction throughout that moving in on his face, on Robert's face for that first close up you talk about the lights just falling away, uh, except mm -hmm. on those eyes. It, it's just fantastic stuff here. You know, earlier when we were talking about Rocky, we were relating it to some of the other movies from our 76 Best Year Ever series. But one of my favorite things to do is find, and it's always unintentional, they just present themselves, connections between these randomly chosen movies. It just worked out that we were talking about Rocky the same time we were talking about Detour. And what could these movies possibly have in common? And I will try to tie this back to Noir here in a second, Josh. Let's see if I pull it off. But Al, like Rocky Balboa, they're both bums. They even talk about themselves in similar terms. They've got no money. They've got no prospects. They both get into something that can change their lives, but they're in way over their heads. And if Rocky is the American dream, and if we are going to say it's sentimental, like you feel detour of course is the complete 
opposite in terms of sentimentality. It's devoid of it, really. And this is the American nightmare. Both characters are in their situations randomly, you could say, right? Balboa being chosen by Apollo Creed. And here, everything that seems to happen to Al. Chosen by fate, as he says it anyway. Except one gets the opportunity of a lifetime. The other... (laughs) A spiraling mess of viciousness. And where I made this connection, the line that stuck out to me watching Detour after Rocky is when Vera says, life's like a ball game. You got to take a swing at whatever comes along before you find it's the ninth inning. And it reminded me of the line in Rocky where the bartender makes a comment, a derogatory comment about Apollo Creed and Rocky pushes back on him and says, he took his best shot at becoming champ. What shot did you ever take? Both lines essentially conveying the same thing. You get an opportunity in America, you got to take it. Anything is possible. Go for it. But appropriately, the line in Detour is drenched in fatalistic dread because of that last part. Before something comes along and you find it's the ninth inning. So this sense that the clock is always ticking. The clock might be running out. You could be dead at any moment. Well, the thing about Roberts and and half of the voiceover narration he has, he's talking about how fate has dealt him a bad hand, right? Right. And what's fascinating to me about him is that I think this movie is really not about those cards, but how he decides to play them. There are so mm. many choices he makes in this movie, including picking up Vera. That was, you know, the very wrong choice. And and you wonder what was his motivation there, but he does. Um, and I just, Roberts is never entirely guilty. You could say, um, all the events we see that happen, but he's not quite innocent either. Right. And what I love yeah. about Neil's performance is that you can see that conflict playing out on his face the whole time. It's also emphasized again by Ulmer when, even when he's not, when Neil isn't sweating, there's, there are rain scenes, so it looks like he's sweating, right? Um, but I wonder, Adam, did you ever, did you consider while watching this, did it strike you that we are getting a very biased perspective on this story, right? We've got totally. we've got the narration from his perspective. The camera even captures his blinkered point of view. How about that late sequence where something terrible has happened and he's looking about the room and the camera blurs in and out on each object meant to mimic Roberts's point of view, right? So we're, yeah, we're after entirely a key scene, after a key, the most the most guilty act yes. he's committed, even if there was some unintentionality to it. Correct. There's no there's no going back. There's no world now where you you can pretend that you're somehow a naive innocent. exactly. And and the way that world blurs around him really is one of the nicest touches in the movie. And it made me think: Could you read this movie as almost a subjective cover up? So what we're getting is. You know, Roberts is a way worse guy who's made way worse choices than what we've actually been presented by him. Um, And and this whole like story we're being sold is him covering that up, is selling us a tale because it felt like that to me for much of the running time. I saw it once he was dead and I was in for it. Who would believe he fell out of the car? Why, if Haskell came too, which of course he couldn't, even he would swear I conked him over the head for his dough. Yes, I was in for it. Instinct told me to run, but then I realized it was hopeless. There were lots of people back down the road who could identify me. That gas station guy and the waitress. I would be in a worse spot then, trying to explain why I beat it. The next possibility was to sit tight and tell the truth when the cops came. But that would be crazy. They'd laugh at the truth. I'm not having my head in the noose. 
Well, I think that's one of the challenges of noir and that subjective point of view oftentimes and the storytelling framing. A lot of times like this, it feels like a confession. And so when you're making a confession, are you truly confessing right. all of your sins? Right. Or even in that moment, are you trying to be absolved and you still want to sound like a better person mm-hmm. than you really are? Are you going to find ways to provide commentary on the actions or to make it sound like you really had no choice. And I think that's the the interesting element here. So maybe I kind of default to giving the character the benefit of the doubt. It's the only version we get. Right. So so yes, he could be lying or this is what really happens to him. And I think there is a question hanging over the film, which is how sympathetic is Al really? Like, how much do we really feel for him? I think there is something about him and the situations that he's in, or at least the situations he recalls and recounts, that are relatable. Sure. And anybody, anybody watching and listening could feel for him. But I think what's important, what really resonated with me, is how quickly and easily he rationalizes doing terrible things or at least doing things that he knows are wrong and that he shouldn't do. Like maybe he didn't do the first thing wrong, but once that choice has been made for him, then all of a sudden it's like he's got carte blanche Mm -hmm. to just continue making bad choices. And I do think maybe I want to read into that some kind of commentary on, again, not the American dream, but the American nightmare and there being a certain aspect of exploitation to it. And everybody's just out for themselves. And even good people can find themselves corrupted because once that die is cast or once something happens that puts you in a position where you feel like you don't have a choice, then all of a sudden it's like you're free to do whatever bad things you want. And even though he's guilty about it, he conveys guilt about it. He really easily goes from one thought to the next yeah. and makes a bunch of bad choices. And a lot of that is what makes him dishonest, where Vera, who, you know, we could say is probably the worst person <laughs> from what we're presented with, at least. She's more honest, though, on that level, is that she's always clear about what she's doing and why. And she's not pretending like she's innocent of anything, really. We should probably note the um, the source material for all of this because Martin Goldsmith, the screenwriter, is adapting his own novel, which uh, came out in 1939. And that's where you get a lot of that, you know, Hammett and Chandler style, hard-boiled language. There's so much of it here. It's so fun to hear that either, a lot of it from Vera, which I think is, you know, also it makes her unique because these are usually the way the men talk in these yeah. films, um, but here she does and Roberts does as well. And also just wanted to know one other filmmaking touch that was so brilliant. At one point, Roberts is looking ahead. This kind of speaks to what you're talking about him, you know, wanting to see, to justify what he's been doing, right? He's looking ahead to what life will be like when he gets to LA and reunites with Anne, who doesn't have a big part, but is played by Claudia Drake. And um, he looks in the rearview mirror and suddenly that sort of transforms. The camera goes into it and we see this image of Anne performing on stage. Behind her are these giant silhouettes of yeah, musicians another playing. expressionistic touch. Very expressionistic. Also like not like probably a very cheap thing to put together, right? You know, it, but, but definitely does the trick. So there's just so many little visual, like brilliant moments like that in this film. I do want to call out some of the dialogue you said we both said how good some of the lines are and there's that great prototypical noir exchange that happens between them where 
She says, I'm going to see that you sell this car so you don't get caught. He says, thanks. Of course, your interest wouldn't be financial, would it? You wouldn't want a small percentage of the profits. Well, now that you insist, how can I refuse? A hundred percent will do. <laughs> he says, fine, I'm relieved. I thought for a moment you weren't going to take it all. And she says, I don't want to be a hog. And, you know, it's just like we get the joke, but it's going to keep going, right? They're going to keep yeah, bantering yeah. and bickering with each other. And in terms of that, that hard-boiled style, you're right. These are the lines that usually are put in the mouths of the tough guy detectives, those dark nights in these movies. And instead here, it's Vera who says, listen, I've been around and I know a wrong guy when I see one. What'd you do? Kiss him with a wrench? <laughs> but the best, I mean, the best line, and it's one of those lines that I may just have to decide to incorporate into everyday speech, though it's not one I could volley at my wife, and I equate it to the line. I remember watching uh, Inside the Actor's Studio years ago with Sean Penn, where he quotes, now I can't remember who the writer is, but he's asked what his favorite swear word is, you know, that, that Q&A that comes at the end, and he quotes a line from a piece where someone says angrily to another, you dentist, <laughs> you know? And, and Vera says, shut up, you're making noises like a husband. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and we all know what that means. We all know what she means by that. And yeah, Detour is filled with gems like that. An interesting bio thing with Savage looking up some more about her is she made a late career appearance in Guy Madden's My Winnipeg. I, and that, that was really? yeah just before her death. Love that movie. In 2008. That is Anne Savage. And other than that, you know, she mostly did B-movies in the 40s and 50s. Not just noir, but also... Um, it looked like Westerns, musicals, war dramas, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, you know, never became the sort of star that Betty Davis did. But certainly, um, at least in this picture, <laughs> you have to feel could go toe to toe with her. I was just going to say, and I wanted to confirm it before I did. Of course, it's Anne Savage as the mother in my Winnipeg. If you haven't seen that pseudo documentary fantasia however you want to label it it's really fantastic and now i want to watch it again just to see Anne savage as the mother in that movie detour is in the public domain so you can find it very easily online you can see it for free i think on amazon prime also a restored version is currently available on the criterion channel next up in the 40s noir marathon 1947's the lady from shanghai a long Orson Welles blind spot for me. Me too. Gosh, so can't wait for that. And without seeing the movie, I don't want to commit to this, but maybe a more conventional noir leading lady or femme fatale, Rita Hayworth? We'll find out. We will indeed. That movie is available to rent on most platforms and free to Amazon Prime subscribers. We will get to that in a couple of weeks. More about this and previous marathons is available at filmspotting.net slash marathons josh that's our show it is if you want to tell me how unpatriotic i am for not liking rocky well i'm on facebook and twitter at larson on film if you want to praise adam for you know liking rocky mm. he's at film spotting in the show archives at filmspotting.net you can find reviews interviews and top fives going back to 2005 you can also vote in the film spotting poll we're asking which 2021 best picture nominee would get your vote to order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, Thunder Force. This is Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer fighting supervillains 
directed by Ben Falcone. That's on Netflix. And in limited release, Voyagers, a group of young men and women embark on an expedition to colonize a distant planet. That stars Colin Farrell and Ty Sheridan, written and directed by former film spotting favorite, big fan of The Illusionist, and one-time guest on the show, Neil Berger, also fans of Colin Farrell and Ty Sheridan. I'm a little disappointed. It appears this is not a remake of the 80s show I loved as a kid where they had that little watch and they went around in time. Did you ever see that one, Josh? Voyager? A, sh- a show or a movie? I- I'm pretty sure a TV show. Okay. Faint memories. That's all I can give Faint. you. <laughs> okay. Next week, we will share our Oscar picks. The great Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune will join us for that. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.